Welcome back, and thank you for joining me on the Battlefield Theologian Podcast. The Battlefield Theologian Podcast is for individuals who wish to wage war against the secular culture and are willing to stand their ground on scriptural truths and Christian doctrine. I'm your host, Ethan Jago, and today we're going to be talking about faith and politics. This episode is going to be, uh, I've got a special treat for us halfway through where we're going to be, as we're going through understanding faith and politics, how should Christians respond in faith? Uh, I've got an incredible bit of research I've been doing in the history of the Roman Empire during the first century church to talk about the persecution. So you definitely want to stick around for the whole episode and you don't want to miss that. But as I'm, basically as I was preparing this, uh, it was in response to obviously the elections that we just had and Twitter was blowing up and I saw a lot of different Christians uh, posting, retweeting, and then also the the new rise, it's not new, uh, the surpassing amount in large varieties in numbers of individuals pushing for and moving towards Christian nationalism. Now, this podcast isn't addressing exactly Christian nationalism. This podcast is going to be addressing a few different questions. One, how are Christians to obey Christ's commands to obey corrupt earthly governments? Do we unconditionally, as Christians, obey earthly governments in obedience to God? And under what conditions, if any, do we disobey our earthly governments? So those are the questions we're going to be looking at today and several different uh, topics and interesting things here that is going to be, I think, very exciting for everyone who's joining me today. But here's what I want to start off with talking about is that many Christians today are so engaged in politics um, that they are placing the primary importance of this life on the temporal issues rather than the eternal issues. Now, let me caveat all of this saying, I'm not saying Christians cannot be in politics. I'm not saying that Christians should not be in politics. But what I'm saying is there's a line that Christians will cross and you need to understand and recognize where that line is and when are you recognizing that you are basically having idolatry towards the political systems and the political parties, but understanding as well Where is our hope as Christians? And obviously it should not and will never ever be in any political system. And a lot of Christians are placing so much emphasis in the political realm that will only ever solve the temporal issues. And we as Christians know that this earth is not our home. We need to be focusing on the eternal issues. Now, here's the thing. Evangelical activists uh, who have been really pushing for this are in essence simply preaching, if you think about the whole purpose of Christianity, these type of evangelical political activists are preaching a politically conservative version of an old social gospel. What is the old social gospel? It is a gospel that emphasizes social and cultural concerns above spiritual ones. See, this is a huge thing that has come up with uh, critical race theory and several other things is making so the social gospel. The gospel is not about social and cultural concerns. The gospel is a spiritual gospel talking in the spiritual realm about your eternal salvation and security in Jesus Christ. So we're getting this out of the way. But what happens, though, is when these evangelical activists in the political realm uh, continue this type of thinking and force this type of thinking on other Christians who are needing to develop their spiritual discernment filters through how should we view government, how should we view politics, and in what way can Christians should be in politics. This kind of thinking fosters the view 
in two ways. This fosters the view that government is either our ally if it supports our special agenda, or it's our enemy if it remains opposed or unresponsive to our voice. So let's just say this. Let's say America does become a Christian nation, quote unquote. And people are like, oh, Christian, you know, America was founded on as a Christian nation, this and that. Yes, but if you also look at the founding fathers, many of them were deists. So it was Christian in name, but it was, was it Christian in character? So if America does become a Christian nation, is the message and spread of the gospel dependent on mankind's ability to sway the government into becoming a Christian nation? Does God rely on mankind's disposition and political condition to save people? Does mankind now, by moving the political system, add something to saving grace? The focus for Christians does not need to be political. We should and we can be involved, but this should not be our primary and it should not be our only focus. When we become overly committed and 100% invested in any particular party or candidate, we run the risk of believing or believing that the blessing or cursing of God's people will change depending on who is elected. But we must understand and understand this very clearly that no human government can ultimately do anything either to advance or to thwart God's kingdom. Now, can the conditions be ripe, as I've heard some Christian nationalists say, for the spread of the gospel? Yes, but it doesn't matter. It, it, it doesn't matter. God does not need these conditions in order for the gospel to flourish. And I'm going to show you historically why I can say this objectively true which is why I'm also saying that Christianity does not need to be, um, or Christians do not need to be so invested in America that if America does not become a quote unquote Christian nation, that the gospel now is somehow going to be limited or thwarted by mankind's ability to suppress the gospel message and the transmission of hope and salvation. Now, here's the thing. No matter how hard governments persecute Christians, they try and kill Christians, or they continually become corrupt, this does not, nor it should ever, halt the advancement of the spread of the gospel. So I want to put some items in perspective for us, because we so often feel that the current era and time is darker than it has ever been before. Now, I'm not here to say that the things that are bad now aren't as bad as they were in the past. I think everything can be relative to the degree, but I'm, I want to show you historically some issues uh, historically in which the government was corrupt Christians were being slaughtered and the conditions was not a quote unquote Christian state to demonstrate to you that it does not matter who or what party or individual is in power within the government system that ultimately God will preserve his saints. God will spread the gospel and it is our job and ability to do so. So I'm going to give you some history. And then what we're going to look at after this little historical break is I'm going to give us the breakdown exactly from a biblical perspective, what is required of the government, what is required of Christians and how and which should we respond when that government violates scripture. So here's what we're going to be doing here. We need to understand that we are living in this world, but we're not committed to this world. This world is not our home. Now, here's what's awesome. I'm going to take us back in time here. All right, we're going to go back in time. So, welcome to the first century. In Acts chapter 4, we see that the church began to grow. Not just in Acts chapter 4, but in Acts chapter 2. We see 3,000 people being added. Then in Acts chapter 4, 5,000 people being added. In the first few chapters of Acts, we see the explosion of Christianity. 
And this shows us that the church, and as this church began to grow and expand her borders and move towards the end of the earth, what did the political situation look like in the first century? Let's look at what happened. Let's look at what occurred. So using the book of Acts and the narrative and the timeline in the book of Acts, let's see exactly what transpired after Christ's ascension and the church began to birth. So as we look at the book of Acts, Acts was written in the early 60s, and we, we can establish this time date using Paul's imprisonment in Rome as a place in time. Now, Roman persecution of Christians began during the reign of the Emperor Nero in 64 AD, and it continued. Christian persecution continued. Since Acts was written in 60 AD, we need to see what happened following this. So in 64 to 68 AD, we have the first individual coming on the scene for Christian persecution, Emperor Nero. We've all heard of Nero. What did Nero do in this persecution? He persecuted Christians by pointing to them as the arsonists of the great fire that had destroyed Rome, which rumor has it that Nero, in fact, did set this because Nero was kind of crazy. He executed Christians as food for beasts, and he lit them up as torches at night to light up the outdoor party venues. He did this by dumping wax on them, tying them to stakes, and then lighting them on fire to light up his dinner parties. And most of these persecutions that happened under Nero's reign happened in Rome. Now, an interesting note, in 66 AD, before I jump to the next emperor, in 66 AD, Gcius Florus, who was the seventh procurator, the chief financial officer of the district of Judea, the Roman taxes in this district were low. So what did he do? He went into the temple of Jerusalem and seized silver from the temple. Well, that did not go over too well, and the Jews didn't like this, and they began to riot. So Florus sent in troops into Jerusalem and killed 3,600 citizens. And this is what sparked the first Jewish revolt. Now, this isn't Christian-specific persecution, but I'm just showing you the political system in place and the horrific events that transpired, but yet as this was happening, the church was continuing to grow even amidst these horrific conditions. So the Jewish revolt began, and it began by a few zealots that attacked this incredible fortress uh, named Masada, and this was built into a rock bed of a mountain. It's insane if you look at the pictures of it. It was an incredible Roman fortress but whatever, however happened, the zealots were attacked and slaughtered the Roman army at this encampment. And as this was going on, the Jews began expelling Romans or killing Romans in the city of Jerusalem. Judea was in complete revolt, and this revolt began to spread to Galilee. Now, responding to this revolt, obviously Rome's not going to let this happen since Rome is the greatest empire, right, at the time. Responding to this revolt, Cestius Callus, the Roman governor of the region, took 20,000 soldiers from Syria and besieged Jerusalem for six months. However, he failed to take it after 6,000 Roman soldiers were killed. He retreated and went back. Now, Nero found out about this, and he became involved and sent Vespian, a decorated general that Nero knew, and sent him to go and attack the city of Jerusalem. Now, as he sent him out to go do this, Nero ended up executing or killing himself. He committed suicide, which led the empire into a civil war and a grab for power began to happen amongst all these key individuals. And this was into the year of what is known as the year of four emperors. 
Now Vespasian uh, was an, like I said, an ally where a general to Nero was tasked by Nero to go and besiege and take care of this rebellion. But when Nero killed himself, he saw an opportunity for him to seize power. So what he did was he allied with the governor of Syria, Marcus Antonius Primus, to go and contest for the office of the emperor. Now, as he did this and he allied with Primus, he tasked the job of besieging Jerusalem to Vespianus' son, Titus. So Vespian, while he tasked Titus out to go besiege Jerusalem, Vespian won the battle and was declared the emperor at 69 AD. So after Nero died in 68, he took the title in 69 and his son was then tasked with going and destroying Jerusalem. Now Titus in the year 70 AD led the troops and blocked the trade in and out of Jerusalem during the time of Passover, which is usually right around the March time frame. Because it was Passover, Titus ended up allowing pilgrims to go into the city, but did not let anyone leave. Essentially, he was starving the city to death. So those are horrific conditions here. By August, so from March to August, by August, Titus had breached and destroyed the final defenses and massacred much of the population and destroyed the second temple. So the first temple that was built was destroyed in 586 BC by King Nebuchadnezzar. And then the second temple that was built was destroyed in 70 AD. Now, moving out of from this individual, we're gonna skip ahead a little bit and jump into 90 AD. So we're jumping from 70 AD to 90 AD. In 90 AD, another emperor continuing the persecution of Christians was called Domitian. And his persecution was similar to Nero's and he oppressed the Christians under and by accusing them that the gods were angry in the state of Rome because of the Christians' presence within Rome itself. And he attacked any non-Roman religions and even those who were sympathetic with them and charged them with treason. He was the emperor who exiled the apostle John to the island of Patmos. And we know that John wrote the book of Revelation on this island in exile in 95 AD. So at this point in time, this forced Christians to worship in underground tombs and catacombs to escape persecution. So this is just attesting to the horrific state of the government that Christians had to hide as they were worshiping God, but yet they still did not neglect gathering and meeting together. But yet what does it take for Americans? a little virus that spread around that prevented Americans from gathering together in the churches. Don't worry, we're going to get into that later. But we see that the conditions here were horrific. Now, skipping ahead, we have Trajan's persecution, which lasted from 98 to 117. And he persecuted Christians as felons and charged them as felons for refusing to worship the emperor. Ignatius, who was the bishop of the church in Antioch, he was martyred as well during this time. Now, moving ahead, the next individual who came after Trajan was Hadrian. And in 117 to 138, he set up statues of the emperor and other statues and forced everyone to worship them. If the Christians refused, guess what? They were executed. Even those who protected Christians were punished. So now we're going to move into the next emperor. But I'm going to play a clip that should get you guys thinking about which emperor we're about to talk about. Name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north. General of the Felix Legions. Loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius. So, if you've not seen that movie, that's from Gladiator. And the reason why I played that was because he honored Marcus Aurelius as the emperor at that time, which, if you've watched this movie, 
uh, his son uh, supposedly murdered Aurelius, and a lot of individuals hyperinflate the reign of Marcus Aurelius as a great philosopher and everything else like that. But did you know that Marcus Aurelius also persecuted Christians, and he reigned from 161 to 180? Well, what did he do? Any natural disaster that occurred, Aurelius blamed Christians for these natural disasters. So if there was any famine, drought, or anything else like that, he executed them. Well, how did he do this? He gave the corpses of the Christians and fed the Christians to dogs for food. Yeah, so Aurelius is really not at the, the peaceful guy that the movie makes him out to be. So next one, after Aurelius, we have Septimius Severus, and he reigned from 202 to 211. He forced the Christians to worship the sun god and prohibited conversion to Christianity for anyone under the Roman Empire. He proclaimed a decree stating that the conversion to Christianity is punishable by death. So yeah, that's really bad. But did the church stop growing? No, it did not. The next one is Maximus's. Maximinus, he reigned from 235 to 236. And what did he do? He persecuted the Christians for supporting the ex-emperor who was assassinated. And how did he do this? He executed the Christian clergy. His thought was, if I take out the head of the snake, this religion will fall. Well, that might work for other religions, but that's not going to work for Christianity. Well, the next guy from 249 to 251 was Decius. He issued an edict to spread the persecution throughout the entire Roman Empire. So usually what it was was limited to Rome and other spots, and now at this point it was global. He commanded all citizens to worship the Roman gods, and those who disobeyed were executed for refusing to obey the edict. Now, what did he do? Well, he considered Christians to become apostates and claimed that they were apostates and able to eradicate Christianity. And in this time period between 249 and 251, this was when most of the martyrs uh, occurred and most of the individuals becoming apostate happened was during this period. The next one is 259 to 260 was Valerian. He prohibited Christian gatherings and confiscated their land and properties and again executed the clergy and exiled them. So again, it's you just see this continual history of the main guy in charge of the government not just making it inhospitable, but making it deadly for you to actually be a Christian. And time and time and time again, the kingdom of God continued to spread. The gospel continued to spread. Christians began to grow. Christians were replacing the clergy that fell before them. And so what we see here is one, if you read between the lines here, clearly discipleship was of heavy and high importance within this first church here. Why? Because they knew that eventually their leaders would probably be killed by the government. So other people would have to step up to continue leading the church. But at the same time, you can't have discipleship without gathering. And you can't gather unless you're being bold with the gospel. And you can't be bold with the gospel if you're in fear of what the government is going to do or say to you. Well, if the government is hostile towards Christianity, then how can we do anything? It doesn't matter. We're still commanded to meet together. We're still commanded to worship God. And we're still commanded to spread the gospel. Now, the next guy I'm going to clear off with here is Diocletian. His persecution was 303 to 311, and this was the worst persecution that deprived the Christians of all of their rights. He declared the four edicts against Christianity by forcing Christian soldiers to forsake their faith and executed them if they disobeyed. He destroyed not just Christian soldiers and anyone else, he destroyed church buildings, he burned the Bible, 
he banned worship and expelled the Christians from public office. So no Christian could hold any public office. This means that regardless of their citizenship they or their influence or affluence, they could never be in the Senate. They could never be in any kind of a government position. So think about that as well. Is America in that condition? No, but that's not the point of what I'm trying to say here. What I'm trying to show you and demonstrate to you is that the nature and condition of the government should not dictate Christian's duty to continue to meet together, spread the gospel, and disciple one another. So we see that looking at that point in time of history, that was dark. That was bleak. That was bad. And yet people, and yes, uh, we have corrupt individuals in our government, 100%. I'm not arguing that. And Christians need to lobby and be activists. But what I'm saying is that if you are overcommitted into our political party and political system, in the political party or political system that you think is most conducive for Christianity, if you think that that is contingent or God's kingdom is contingent on this political party, you are sadly mistaken. You may be thinking, that's not what I'm thinking. Well, what I see being written, what I see being reposted is Americans placing their hope, one, in this country and two, in specific individuals, as if this one individual is going to be the savior of the country. Now, would I like to have an individual who honors God, fears God, loves God, and worships God in office? I absolutely would, but I don't need that to happen for me to continue to be a Christian. And I'm going to unpack now what is the role of government, how should we view the role of government, and what is required of the government, and at what point in time should Christians disobey the government? So to understand the government politics and everything else in between there, including war, we can break this down into three categories. One, we need to understand the role of man. Two, we need to understand the commands of God. And three, we need to understand the role of government. So let's look at the first one, the role of man. Now, Genesis chapter one, verse 26 through 27, it says this, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Here's a big thing that a lot of people mix up is what is the image of God? This does not mean that we are made in the physical image of God because we know that God does not have a body. God is a spirit. So if you look at the Hebrew word of what this is talking about, it's the Hebrew word selim. And what this means is in our likeness or after our image. So these two prepositions to describe from the Hebrew word what the definition is, these two prepositions according to are virtually equivalent within the context of the passage because to Salem is frequently translated as statutes, models, or replicas when used with the abstract noun demuth. Now, this is understood in the verbal root likeness is understood as to resemble. So what does this mean, Ethan? What do these two Hebrew words mean of these two prepositions? Well, if we pair these two together, this describes that human beings are made in a way similar, in a similar way, in a similar function of their creator, but not exactly and not identical. So what is this meaning? This is meaning and highlighting that we are made in the spiritual essence rather than the physical because we understand if we are made in a spiritual essence like God, that means that we can know God, we can have a relationship with God, and when we die, will we spend eternity in God because we also have a spiritual essence about us. Does that make sense? It should make sense. So to summarize this, what is the image of God? It is the God-given mental and spiritual capacities that enable us to relate to God and serve under Him 
for ruling creation as his vice regents, because that was our command given to us in Genesis 1 is to have dominion. We are the vice regents of God. He has made us in his image. We can know him and that he exists. So with this being said, we need to understand this. God views human life as precious, and we are all to reflect his ruling, his creativity, and his morality. Why? Because we were all, all human beings were made in the image of God. And after the fall in Genesis 3, the image, though, was marred and distorted, but it was not destroyed. God loves and cares for his creation. Well, how do I know this? Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for an Assyrian? That's a basically a penny. And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear you are more valuable than many sparrows. So if God cares about the lesser things in creation, such as a sparrow, how much more does God care about the greater things in creation, such as mankind? So the next thing I want us to look at is that God commands us to protect human life. Since life is precious and all human beings are made in the image of God, we must preserve and protect human life and enact justice on anyone who murders or destroys a bearer of that image. In Micah 6, 8, it says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does Yahweh require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The word justice here in the Hebrew is mishpat, and this means to act in accordance with divine law, to enact judgment or a deciding case. Now, in Deuteronomy 16, 18, we see that the civil magistrate and the government is being created here. In Deuteronomy 16, 18, it says this, You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your gates of the towns which Yahweh your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. So we see a qualifier for how government is supposed to be executing judgment, righteously. Verse 19, you shall not distort justice, you shall not be partial, and you shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. So when you see this word judges in this section of Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 19, when you see this word judges, this is civil officers. So civil officers are given the task of consisting in rendering judgments and administering justice. Now, what I am going to show us here is that in Genesis chapter 9, verse 5 through 6, for these individuals to enact justice, what does that mean and what are they supposed to do? In Genesis chapter 9, verse 5 through 6, it says this, Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every little thing, every living thing, I will require it. And from every man, from each man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So what does this mean? Punishment from the hand of every man who sheds it means require to seek, ask for, or to exact. Here it means that God will exact punishment for the taking of a human life. The point here is that God requires the blood of someone who kills another image bearer. And the text in Genesis regarding Noah and his descendants, which is what's happening here, is that everyone is a part of Noah's extended family. This also suggests and describes that the brotherhood of humankind, since we are all made in the image of God. Now let's shift this understanding of what is man, how are we supposed to view ourselves, the role of man, what is God, God has given now the commands for us to protect human life. Let's switch this now to how does this work and play out in the role of government. Looking at Romans chapter 13, if you've never read this, this is the best passage to understand in what role does government play and how should Christians subject themselves to the role of government, but also what in, is ro the role of government supposed to be doing and how are they supposed to be acting? Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 7 says this, 
Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Okay, so there we have our mandate right there that we are supposed to subject ourselves to the governing authorities. So what does this mean? Christians must submit themselves to the governing authorities. Well, why? Because of this. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist, those authorities that exist, have been appointed by God. So this is talking about God's sovereignty and that God is in control of anyone and any political party getting into power. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists that authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnations upon themselves. So we are told here exclusively that Paul says, if you disobey and resist that authority, you are opposing the ordinance of God. And if you do this, you are going to receive condemnation on yourself. So what does this mean? We are to obey our government. We're supposed to submit ourselves to our government, but there is a caveat here, and I'm going to talk about that here in a second. Verse three, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of that authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. So what does this mean? This means, and this gives the qualifications, that the government should and must not be ruling with a sense of fear. If you are doing good and you will get punished for doing good, that is not a way in which a government should be ruling. The only thing that rulers are supposed to be ruling with fear is for anyone who commits evil. So if you're in a country, if you're in America and you go and commit murder or you go and commit a bank robbery, you should know that the conditions in America are inhospitable for you to do so. But with certain elements of items that are occurring within America, we know that there is actually evil happening. And sadly, the government is endorsing evil, such as abortions, in which now government is in violation of God's law. And we're going to unpack this here in a second. So we understand in verse three of Romans 13, that rulers are not supposed to be ruling over good people with fear, but the fear is deserving for the evil individual only. Now, verse four, for it is a minister of God to you for you to do good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it is not, for it does not bear the sword in vain, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So what is this saying? It's saying Christians need to be doing good. But if we do what is evil, guess what? You're going to get the wrath re- released on you, probably not just from the government, but also from God himself. Verse 5, therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of that wrath, that wrath that you will receive if you disobey God, because you're disobeying it in two folds now, but also because of conscience. Verse 6, for because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due to them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, we got to understand this. We are supposed to, and Jesus even said this too, render to Caesar unto Caesar's, but render unto God what is God's. But that line can get gray, and I'll explain that here in a second. But what I'm trying to show you is that the role of government, according to Romans 13, and the role of ourselves to government, is that the government needs to be acting in accordance with God's law. And if it doesn't, and we should not expect them to, especially if it's a morally corrupt government, such as was the case with the Roman emperors, it's not that, okay, well, the Roman emperor is not a believer. Therefore, I don't have to obey everything that he says. That's not what this is saying. 
What this is saying is that if the ruler is ruling, we need to understand that God has allowed that ruler to be put in place there. And what this text is also saying is that as long as he is doing good and he is executing justice on the evil person, then we are still to be in submission and subjection to him. And if this is the case, we should not be getting caught doing evil because we will not just receive the wrath of the ruler, but we will receive the wrath of God on us as well. So to summarize this even better, God ordained the government. The government is meant to punish the evil and wrongdoers. And the government does this by protecting human life and not encouraging the taking of human life. Okay, well, I need continued support. All right, look at 1 Peter 2, 13 through 14. Be subject for the sake of the Lord to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and praise those who do good. So understanding this, we see that the biblical principles of the role of government is to protect its people. And when a person or country violates that law, the government is supposed to protect its people from undue harm, murder, atrocities, and other actions that infringe or violate the sanctity of human life and other harm. So we get some serious principles right here about when this is being in violation and the government not actually doing what the government is supposed to be doing. I think you can connect the dots here as well. But what we need to understand is that the entire human race, ladies and gentlemen, outside of Christ is characterized by sinful behavior. Romans 3.10 says this, there is no one righteous, not even one. Psalm 53.1 says this, the wicked fool says in his heart, there is no God. They act corruptly and commit abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. So it should come as no surprise when a non-believer or a non-Christian, even if they claim to be a quote-unquote Christian, their actions and fruit will speak for themselves. So is it any wonder when an individual who is not a believer is not a following and is not following the principles and the governance that God has given to us in his holy scripture? No, I cannot project Christian morality onto a non-Christian and expect him to follow Christian morality and ethics out of Scripture if they themselves are not a Christian. Does that make sense? You cannot expect a government to act as a Christ-following, Christ-loving government if the leaders are not following and are not in Christ. So when a ruler who is not a Christian is giving commands or orders or anything else, as long as it does not infringe on human life and it is not forbidding us to do something that God commands and it's not commanding us to do something that God forbids, we are to submit to our, to him or her or whoever it is and respect that. But the, there's that dividing line. If they are telling us or commanding us to do something that God forbids or if they forbid us to do something that God commands. So... Like the emperors of old saying, you will worship me, and the Christians say, no, the Christians are in the right. The emperor is telling them to worship that emperor as God, and we are told there is no other God but God, and we only worship our God, not them as gods. Or in the time in the Old Testament too, bow down to this statue, or go in here and offer homage and payments to this individual and worship them as God. They are trying to command us to do something that God forbids. We do not need to obey that, nor should we obey that. Let's take this another step further. The government says you cannot meet together. You're not allowed to meet together. You're not allowed to gather in churches. Well, based off of scripture, does God command us to meet together? Yes, he does. So according to scripture, do I need to obey that command? No, I do not. 
Why? Because it is violating God's law and what God has commanded us to do. See, that is how we have to view the government. As we submit to our government, we become very good citizens in this government. We honor, respect, and follow this government. But if they are telling us to do something that God, or if they are commanding us to do something that God forbids, we do not do it. Or if they're forbidding us to do something that God commands, we do not do it. But there is a line that can get crossed here as well. For instance, if you have a pro-abortion president and he is telling everybody that we will be a pro-abortion country, he is now violating God's law. This does not mean we overthrow the government. By no means is that ever the case. We're supposed to be in subjection to him. What this is saying is that we do not participate in that. We protest against that. We do not uh, engage in any of that. We are separate from that. We do not do that. Now, imagine if a president of America now states and says, every time that you come into your church, you will there will be a picture displayed of the president of the United States, whatever president it is or whatever it is, and everyone will pledge their allegiance and will worship this president as God. This is, again, when the church will not follow that. This is, again, when the church will neglect that order because it is violating what God has commanded us to do. We will not disobey the Ten Commandments. We will not worship anyone else as God. There is only one God. Does this make sense? Because it should, because this should be helping you develop this filter and this lens to be able to differentiate between a lawful order out of God's word and when the government is violating God's word. But when they violate God's word, that does not mean that the entire government needs to be ignored. No, what you ignore is that specific rule, that specific order, that specific command. But in all other aspects, you are to be a good citizen within that country. I hope you understand this because what I have seen a lot of people is it's down with everyone and everything that opposes God. Well, of course they oppose God. They're not Christians. Why would we... Why would we project onto them to follow God's law when, when you yourself prior to Christ did not follow God's law? You can't throw the bathwater out and then keep whatever's left over. You can't throw out both and then assume that everything's going to be fine if I don't obey everything uh, because they've commanded us to do something that God forbids in one aspect. So if I am commanded to do something that is in violation of God's law, I do not follow that command. But in all other commands that are in line with God's law, I follow. Because what we have to understand is that the role of government, the role of government is to preserve, protect, and to cherish life, to execute righteous on the evil one, to protect what is good, to protect human life. And that government has been established and has been ordained by God to be in the place that they are in. But when that government steps across this line, and they tell us to do something that God commands us not to do, or they forbid us from doing something that God commands, you will simply not do that one aspect. Because if we are, and we are called to be good citizens, and we are supposed to submit ourselves to the authority, why? Because it is a minister to those around us, and we will continue to spread the gospel. This country is not dependent or dictated by the conditions perfect for the spread of the gospel. If the gospel was spreading over 250 years of incredibly intense persecution, the government can never stop 
the spread of Christianity. If you look at some of these other countries around the globe and denied areas, if you will, the church grows. The church grows. And they value their time together in community so much more than what we do here in America in ways. We take our freedom for granted. We take our country for granted. The country and the conditions for Christianity right now are not bad. I mean, the fact that you can still go to your church and worship God, the fact that you can still openly pray, the fact that you can carry your Bible around in wherever it is that you go and not get executed, that's fantastic. That, that's good. So are we neglecting the time that we have? Are we taking for granted the opportunities we have to spread the gospel? Or are we so worried and muddied up with political parties and systems that we are forgetting our first calling? Our first calling is to God, not to politics. Our first calling is to spread the gospel, not to uh, activism or anything else like that. When, when you aren't following God's commands and you're going outside of God's commands to do something in addition to God's commands that is not necessarily hurtful, but it's not necessarily beneficial, you're in violation of God's law. So if you are so worried and just so caught up in politics and who's in power in this and this, and you're so worried about this, you're being very temporally fixated instead of eternally minded. This world is not our home. We know that everything is passing away. We know that Christ will return again and restore everything unto himself. We are living in the already, but not yet. We already have salvation, but we have yet to go up into heaven to enjoy that with him forever. We have to understand, ladies and gentlemen, this world is not our home. Our home is in heaven. Our hope is not in mankind here. We should not be disappointed and just so depressed and spiral down the drain when whoever we want to get in doesn't get in. Yes, we should take every step necessary to to vote and to pray and to hope that good, godly Christian men and women get into these offices. But if they don't, God has supreme authority. And in Romans 13, he gives the authority. He allows emperors and cities and countries to rise and fall. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. We as Christians are citizens. If you are a citizen of America, you belong to America, but we also, more importantly, we have a deeper loyalty to God. So when our country, if our country forbids us to do something that God commands, we do not listen. If they tell us to do something that God forbids, we do not listen. Well, I hope this helps. Um, I, I hope this this can bring some clarity. I'm sure many of you have talked with individuals, family members, or anyone else that is just so into politics. That's okay. That is fine. There's nothing wrong with being into politics, but just check yourself and your intentions. Am I putting all of my hope and focus in politics? Am I putting my hope for my future in a political person? Hear me out. I want my children to be able to grow up to be able to worship God freely. But if God so chooses in his perfect sovereign will not to allow the conditions to be how they currently are, and it continually increases to get hostile and hostile, then so be it. God has ordained that to happen. God is in control of this to happen. But this does not mean that we are not supposed to be involved. And this does not mean that we are not supposed to try our best to influence things. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is check where your hope ultimately lies. Do you rely on man or is your hope in God? Well, 
I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, I hope you voted. And just remember, God's word is telling us everything that we are to do. And it is profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Thank you for joining me today on the Battlefield Theologian Podcast. I've got some other great podcasts coming down the pipes that I have been researching and getting my notes together for. I'm very excited to share those with you. Hope you guys have a great day and catch up next time with Battlefield Theologian.